I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. And I'm Matt Fraction. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... George Lazenby and Kevin McClory. So basically behind the scenes drama around the James Bond movie franchise. Who are George Lazenby and Kevin McClory? Well, they're two men who each had a brush with James Bond, put their fingerprints on it in various ways, and then, for whatever reason, spent their entire lives fighting with the legacy that was built on the back of Special Agent 007, James Bond. One, George Lazenby's waistcoat. James Bond is an international icon with 25 movies, multiple series of books, comic books, and television shows. Shout out to James Bond Jr. in that one episode of Climax. The character of Bond originates from the British former spy and writer Ian Fleming, who, after retiring from military service to Jamaica, began writing novels about the life of intrigue that he left behind. Only, you know, dialed up to 11. Uh, I have not read all of the James Bond novels, but Matt, you recently reread a bunch of them, right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't do the um, American ones because I live in America and I know America sucks and I don't need a, an insufferable Eaton snob telling me why America sucks. I want him telling me why other exotic places around the world suck. So yeah, the, the American ones I skipped. But, but yeah, so it's like eight of the 13 or whatever. Yeah. The last one I reread was Diamonds Are Forever, mostly because, yeah. Yep. Yep. It's yep. hard. It's rough. Yeah. yeah. And I'm fucking um, uh, uh, Live and Let Die uh, feels obscene to be to read in public. You know, it's it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really grotesque. I mean, even even like the the prolific, prolific use of the N word in uh, in Man with the Golden Gun where he's constantly referring to Bond's underage uh, companion. Right. Where it's just like, oh, I can't believe anybody, like, ugh. Yeah. And then yeah. There's, a, there's a kind of coral reef that's like N-word head, and it just keeps coming up. <laughs> he crashed into the... And it's like the most, like, oh, fuck, God. It, like, I would... Oh, no, I'm, I would read a Hustler to more in public more than some of these like bond books are just the gnarliest and like even my son saw me reading it and he like he goes uh so is it okay to like stuff like that because that looks pretty awful and like we had the we had the, the discussion about the problematic fave you know yeah like yeah no son it I is mean, awful. That's... that's right it's it's real awful it's bad yeah it's it's really bad i kind of had a little bit of that with this and i was i was texting dave about it because uh, and, I, and I think this is going to ring throughout the whole episode uh, from my end is I never really I, I never really I didn't I definitely didn't read any of the of the James Bond books and I really didn't watch any of the movies. I I, I never really had I don't have much nostalgia for the franchise and I just didn't grow up watching them at all. Whenever I was a kid, my brother uh, loved the Brosnan uh, Bond movies and he watched them over and over again and it created some kind of like negative association with just James Bond in general and I just never got into it. Yeah, boy, this episode uh, going to be a fucking slog for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he's no, going to be sitting in the corner quietly and you guys I'm the ringer. I'm the ringer here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, yeah. 
but what yeah. but in in researching from this episode uh and you know this is the most research i've ever had to do because i just never watched the movies um i watched a bunch of the movies and uh i mean we'll definitely talk about it later and as as it goes on and i definitely have a lot of good things to say but also i was texting dave and i was like it's kind of hard to watch these with no with no nostalgia for this franchise like it's it's really kind of difficult to sit here through these and like just grapple with just the casual problematic racism, yeah, casual nature racism of them. Yeah, it's, it's, and, it's, and sexism yeah no it's it's yeah. it is a, a poisonous fucking colonial nightmare um um and yeah no it's it's <laughs> it's not it's not good yeah and i did I, and I, I was apprehensive to try to when i was texting to dave because i because dave i know dave loves these movies and I didn't want to sound like I was trying to be like morally superior or anything like that. So I was like, I definitely like some of my favorite movies of all time have some dark shit in them. But whenever you never watch these as a kid, you have no affinity for them. It you looking at them from an outside perspective. It's just it's a little it's a little difficult to, to get through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the character that he would be most identified uh, with began in the book Casino Royale published in 1953. Bond would go on to appear in 12 books and two short story collections. He would although, make the leap. although it could actually be as many as six short story collections because they keep reissuing them with every film. Right. So, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can, you can you can have multiple copies of For Your Eyes Only. It's it's they empower you, the consumer. <laughs> and they've also put out numerous short story collections and novels that Fleming didn't write. Um, like Kingsley Amos wrote a bunch. And, you know, there's a bunch of bond novels and you know novels of when he's a kid and novels of when he's a teenager and you know all of the any way you can reskin this thing and make money off of it they have but most of them in these conversations about like kind of bond stuff that matters most people don't point to any novel past what fleming wrote as having any sort of meaningful you know they're kind of like star trek novels where like they're fun you like a couple of them, you don't like a couple of them, but really it's, you know, the original whatever 12 that people kind of come back to. Um, I was surprised. Which is funny. I was, I was really surprised in researching this, and obviously this is a total just Bush League. I mean, this is no surprise to you guys at all, but I was super shocked to find out that Ian Fleming basically died before, like, most of the movies even happened. Like, I, I thought he was definitely around for like a good chunk of the yeah no he uh, died before uh, he died before goldfinger yeah I, yeah I i had no idea i thought i thought he was around i didn't know that he basically died before the movies even happened yeah and also if you've ever seen pictures of ian fleming like he died at 58 like he died real <laughs> young right he had that yeah well apparently he was super unhealthy he was a just wildly like, unhealthy unhappy alcoholic yes yeah yeah and the books the books read that way too yes, absolutely more autobiographical yeah. than 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 I think he would want to admit. Yeah, well, you know, as, as, aside from the nuclear missiles and the actually going out on spy adventures and doing any of that stuff, the self-loathing of Bond is definitely autobiographical. The racism definitely autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, the I know like the romanticized like clickbait listicle version of the story and i've never really looked into like what the real story is and i purposely didn't look it up to research this because i figured we could talk about it but there's that story of how ian fleming like this is i'll just say what the thing i i think i've heard is 
is that Ian Fleming uh and Christopher Lee were like spies in the in the British military together. That's that's the version of the story that I've heard, which is probably some simplification of what the real thing is. He was a he was a paper pusher, but like one of his jobs was to come up with schemes. Uh, I think it was like Operation Zigzag or no Operation Mincemeat, um, where they planted fake plans on a corpse and let it wash up on shore and like you know what i mean like, like he would come up yeah. with crazy fucking you can find there's some memos in some of his biographies you can find like memos reproduced where he's like and then all we have to do is poison 13 of the jerrys and then we'll take their clothes and shoes disguising ourselves as a circus troupe and he had a, a squad <laughs> uh, that he uh, charmingly called his red indians um which is a phrase <laughs> that comes up repeatedly in um in the bond novels people chastise Bond for playing Red Indians, um, but yes, yeah, so they hated him, uh, uh, and he would come up with these things for them to do when they would go off and put themselves in danger. And I, I, Chris really, I think, was actually more like espionage. But my, my impression of Fleming is like I don't think he ever saw Europe. The connection there he was is a that in real master. life. <laughs> yeah, the connection though is that in real life, Christopher Lee and Ian Fleming were cousins. Mm. That's the real. That's the real connection. Yeah, I mean, I've yeah. just I've read like random versions of that story, and I just chalked it up. It's probably similar to the thing about how you know Mister Rogers was a sniper, was a sniper, like, like stuff yeah. like that. Of like this probably isn't like fully true. No, no, he did he did leave England because uh, Casino Royale is based on something he did in a French casino, but he fucked up. He lost where Bond wins, but he there were a bunch of. I, yeah, it was. I can't remember. There were there were Germans at a casino. We thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if we go and take them for all they're worth? Here, bankroll me. And his boss gave him, you know, ten thousand pounds or whatever, and he busted out in a fucking game of baccarat. Uh, uh, like, oh well, I'll file this story away for later, though. I'll get Jerry yet. So, but that's like, but that's like so quintessentially Fleming, though. <laughs> the like the wish fulfillment of rewriting your own story and recontextualizing it and making yourself this unwinnable, unkillable, you know, apex of masculine uh, achievement. Like I, it's it's so sad. Do you know the story? You, you know about how Casino Royale was written? No. He um, was about to get married and was afraid and didn't want to think about it. So to give himself something to do rather than sweat his imminent wedding he cranked out casino royale i love and that sort of tells you everything you need to know about ian fleming and his relationship to women and his relationship to this and all, all the all points in between so he did he did, yeah. the, he did the opposite of what most people do where it's like oh, i'm supposed to write this so i'm gonna i'm gonna rearrange my spice rack this needs to happen Right. I'm going to invent myself as an immortal superhero spy. It was very popular with all the ladies and never held down and never stopped. Yes, no one ever tells him no. <laughs> and then I'm just going to smack the women in the face when they even remotely think about declining. Fuck, it's so bad. <laughs> There's a, I read a biography of his and one of his old school friends talked about like, like he was a dog, like he was a hound. Like he was definitely a hound, but like he also had no standards. He would sleep with anyone. He just wanted to sleep with every woman he met and tried and like had no like it wasn't he just anybody who would he'd, he'd go for um, uh, and then got uh, venereal disease in college um, and it was a scandal and he never, ever, ever forgave. And then it wasn't, you know, so he hated so he blamed women for it. <laughs> it was a real fucking yeah. prince, that one. 
Yeah, God forbid he look inside and, you know, do some soul searching and maybe try and... Nope, mm-mm. It's the woman's fault. Uh, yeah. He would make the first leap to film for the short-lived suspense television series titled Climax, which featured Bond being rewritten as an American and renamed Jimmy, which also featured the uh, <laughs> uh, the iconic character actor Peter Lorre as Le Chief. Uh, shortly thereafter, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Cubby Broccoli approached Fleming to adapt the Bond novels into a series of films. They optioned the book. They optioned the books, with the exception of Casino Royale, to make uh, a long story short. They were a success! Yay! And then they made a shitload of movies: Doctor No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice. And after you only live twice, Sean Connery quits the franchise, and he's never gonna, never gonna do another one again, um, except for the so, two others that he did later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except for, except for when he came back. Also, I think he just he had, because I think the "Never Say Never Again" quote comes from after "Diamonds Are Forever," right? It was Not his, 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 yeah, his wife. He said, "Well, that's it. I'll never do that again." And she said, "Well, yeah, yeah, it was his wife." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, what did Saltzman and Broccoli do next? They put out an international casting call looking for the next actor to play James Bond, which I don't think we like in a in a modern context. I don't think we understand how like crazy this is like, you know, in, an, in a world where, you know, Don Cheadle just like steps in and plays War Machine, you know, and they switch out, you know, fantastic forecasts every five minutes. Like Bond was arguably the first film franchise and and also the first time that something like this so publicly was like. The guy left. How are you going to keep the thing going without the guy? Yeah, I think I think this and between this and Doctor Who really canonized the idea that you could like build a franchise and the franchise could be bigger than the sum of its parts. And it didn't necessarily have to retain its entire uh, it didn't have to retain every functioning part of it to to continue on. Yeah, and, it does, um, and they're already at that point, the movies are already kind of. Uh, like they're not like Planet of the Apes bad, but there's a there's a a lack of cohesion and they don't really work as direct sequels of one another. Stuff gets contradicted all the time or double backed and kind of they're very sloppily, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's a it's a, a concept made to be rewritten for sure. At least recast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know. Everybody, all of the, you know, culturally, there was naysayers. They thought the franchise was done. Everybody was like, well, Bond is over. Bond is a relic of the of the 1950s. You know, it's 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 run its course. And then enter our main man, George Lazenby, born George Roger Lazenby on September 5th, 1939. He grew up in Goulburn, New South Wales, Australia. His father, George Edward Lazenby, was a railroad worker. And his mother was named Sheila Joan Lazenby. She worked at Fozzie's which is Australia's target, apparently. I didn't know that before writing this. Apparently the Fozzies. Yeah, you want to go down to the Fozzies? Do you know that Australia is about as big as uh, the United States? I didn't. Because I've seen maps that are made in America. And then I went to Australia, and they're like, is there anywhere you'd like to go while you're here? Might. And I was like, yeah, man, I would love to see Ayers Rock. And they looked at me like, well, that's at least another day of travel. You'd be like a couple of grand for flying. I was like, what do you mean? It would be as though you went to New York and said, let's go to the Grand Canyon tomorrow. And and that was how I learned by being in Brisbane, Australia, and basically saying, let's go to Ayers Rock, and then saying, you know, no, you can't, you can't do that. Anyway, little fun fact for our North American audiences, if you don't know, because you went to public school in North America, Australia and the United States, just about the same size. 
Also, they call Burger King Hungry Jacks. Get out. What? Yeah, they're... you're just making that up. No, I, that was real. I mean, I was, I was, that was a joke saying that, but that's real. The they there was like some there's in Australia when Burger King was uh, franchising in Australia, there was just already a different Burger King, so they they had <laughs> they they had to change the name in Australia to Hungry Jacks. I literally have never heard that before. But it's been Hungry Jack since like the 70s or whatever whatever it was. It's like when Carl's wow, Jr.'s wow. eaters go to a Hardee's and they're just shocked to discover it's the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> what? Carl's Jr. lied to me. Yeah, there's a, in, in LA, there's a chain of grocery stores called Vaughn's. And when I first moved to LA, I was like, oh, that's weird. This, this kind of feels like Safeway, yeah, just, the brand in Arizona that I went to as a kid. Because it's literally the same brand because yeah. they're owned by the same mega corporation. That one's weird, too, because also there's three of them. So there's Vaughn's, Safeway, and then Pavilions. But we, yes. we also yeah. have Pavilions here. It's it's strange. Yeah, really weird. Um, clearly amazing. clearly prepping us all for franchises to be rebooted. <laughs> try, try, trying to find a segue, but like, wait a second. I'm in the same grocery store, but it's got a different name. Much like James Bond, it had been rebranded. The Safeway Cinematic Universe. Yes, exactly. The extended Safeway. The extended Carl's. Oh yeah, yeah. Cinematic. Safeway Legends. We we uh, we joke around all the time that you know at the uh, at at Denny's they on the checkout cashier things they have these little like anthropomorphized pancakes and bacon strips and we always joke that someday we're gonna buy the rights to it and make a the Denny's Cinematic Universe. Uh, that, that that's a joke, Dave. <laughs> I mean, look, man, pancake. I can't believe you're just giving these ideas away for free, man. Come on. I have a. You you got to put this one behind a a paywall. I have a general meeting set up at Warner Brothers on Monday. Wait, it is Monday. Oh, fuck. I missed it. Please back the the Deep Cuts Patreon so we can start crowdsourcing the uh, the funding we're going to need for our massive franchise. Um, Lazenby moved to London in 1963 following a woman that he was dating at the time. Upon arriving, he started working as a car salesman while selling the cars. Uh, a talent scout for modeling agency saw him and convinced him to, well, try out to be a male model. Initially being reluctant, Lazenby discovered that he could become very wealthy without actually having to do too much work. So Lazenby at this time would make around 25,000 pounds a year, the equivalent of roughly 488,000 pounds in today's money, which is a stupid amount of money. Uh, he was most widely known for the Fry's chocolate bar ad at the time. Lazenby heard about the opportunity to audition for Bond and directly went to the Eon offices in Greater London. He lied and said that he was a big actor, and that he had just finished shooting a movie in Japan, and that he was also shooting had just finished shooting another movie in Germany. The casting director liked his look and thought, well, maybe this guy should meet Cubby. This would just totally not happen today. Well, like you just here's, here's the thing about this. This is the best, the, my favorite part of the story. Yeah, and here this is the th- this is the thing that I wanted to bring up because there's like three versions of this story, and they're all from George Lazenby, and so one of the versions, which is very similar to what you've written here, um, and this is the. He said this. I saw multiple interviews where he told the story, and this is the story that he tells in the like James Bond documentary. So I guess this is like official canon of what happened. Is the kayfabe canon yeah, for the Eon? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that is that he he took a girl to a movie 
he took a girl to see a James Bond movie and he literally has like the canned thing he says in every interview where he says, uh, you know, I went I went into the movie with a 90 percent chance of getting laid and then I came out with a 20 percent chance. Uh, and then he he says that he basically after he saw the movie, he just became obsessed with becoming James Bond. And he was like, I'm going to become James Bond. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to become James Bond. And so he got wind that they were recasting James Bond. So he went to the office and he he got he went and he bought a suit that Sean Connery didn't want at, a, at his tailor. And he got his hair cut by Sean Connery's barber. And then he went into the office and he like literally ran past the front desk person when she wasn't looking and just walked in and was like, I need to audition. I'm this guy. And I've been in all these movies or whatever. And then the, the rest is history. But I'm from and Australia, that, and, so you haven't heard of them. And they're like, oh, that sounds plausible. Yeah. And that's that's the best story. That's the best version of the story, like clearly, because it's like. That is like the most like Herculean feat of self-actualization next to the whole thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger, where he said, like when he was a young boy in Austria, he said, one day I'm going to move to the United States and become Mr. Universe. And then I'm going to become a movie star and I'm going to marry a Kennedy and then I'm going to become a politician. Um, the other version, and I'm going to have sex with my housekeeper and then it's going to all come tumbling down. And then I'm going to be a social pariah for a few years and then I'm going to record weird dystopian Paul Verhoeven esque PSAs with horses. Yeah, it's crazy that he got all that. Um, yeah. But uh, and as a side note, I, I was looking this up and I made this connection. And then I immediately after I was thinking about this, found out that George Lazenby married a different Kennedy. He was married to Pam Shriver, who is Maria Shriver's cousin. Uh, but so <laughs> can you imagine that wedding? It's just it's just Schwarzenegger and Lazenby just hanging out, getting drunk. Wow. <laughs> I mean, one, one can only hope that that happened, that that'll be headcanon until somebody proves me that it didn't happen. But uh, so the second version of the story, which he also has said in story in interviews, is that he was on a double date and the other girl was like a producer and she was like, I like your look. You should be an actor. And he was like, I don't want to be an actor. And she's like, you you, you need to try this out. And then like a week later, they were looking for, for a new Bond. And then she called him and was like, they're looking for a new Bond. I'm going to get you a meeting with them. And then she set up the meeting. And like he has said that version of the story too. And then there's a third version of it where they actually sought him out because... That did not happen. When, yeah, whenever they no were, when they were casting, when they wanted a new James Bond they were looking for the most handsome man in the world. And so they reached out to him because he was the biggest model at the time. So they're basically just getting a getting a ringer of the most handsome man in, in the world currently. And I, he's told all three of these stories. Obviously, the, the first two don't contradict one another, right? Like the first two, you kind of fit together and like you omit the one detail from the first version. Yeah to make it a stronger story and you admit the entire of the entirety of the first story from the second to make it a stronger story. Like those two at least fit together a little if you're yeah. trying to make yourself look better, but yeah, no. <laughs> Hello, we're looking for the most handsome man in the world. Give me yeah, George Lazenby. It reminds me a little bit and you know, Dave, you'll know what I'm talking about and maybe Matt, you'll know if you heard the episode, but it reminds me a little bit of Tom Hansen uh, of just like just a much more successful version of Tom Hansen of just like, he had this little bit of a flash in the pan moment 
And from that moment on, the story just got more embellished and more embellished. And yeah. at a certain point, you just don't know what is true and what's not true. And there's, I mean, and there's no it, way. It's of, not it, it's not even Tom Hansen, dude. It's Stan Lee. Like, the, yeah, it's well, fucking Stan. Like, it's like, you know, oh, Jack and I did all of this stuff and we created some cool things that people liked. And then 10 years later, it's, well, I, I created all this stuff. And then I worked with the other guy, Jack. But I really did all this stuff and it was great to, you know, he's 90 years old being like, I created everything. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how far the NDAs I've signed go. I'm gonna go ahead and decide to still go. This isn't live, Matt. No, 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 no. It's a, no, no. It's it's. Uh, uh, well, we can read between the lines. I'm Dave. gonna fill. I'm gonna just fill this in and put words in your mouth and say that you went to a Marvel holiday party where Stanley was dressed as the Emperor and they had a Jack Kirby effigy and they burned it. But as they were doing it, Stan said, "You, you, you, you must die." I'd never met him actually. Oh really? I, yeah, yeah. I totally. Uh, I, I I I saw him twice. Once at my first San Diego, uh, where he was walking uh, to a hotel uh, with a young lady. I thought, oh, I don't know if it's like a niece or a daughter or something. And then as the lady uh, took a step up, her whole entire skirt went up over her bare naked uh, ass in business. And like, oh nope, that's totally not his daughter. Uh, and then um, I was uh, I was gonna. It was. A couple of friends taking an elevator down to a hotel, down to a lobby, and I missed the elevator. And I, I took the stairs, and I thought, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna beat them down." And then, right as the door, I'm gonna jump out as the doors open. Uh, uh, <laughs> you, you were gonna be that. You were trying to kill Stanley. Well, that was that's the punchline of the story. Is I didn't because it's Sunday to, at at a fair three day convention, and I'm tired, and I don't have the energy. So I just show up and I walk in. There's the door open. There's Stanley talking to my friends. I'm like, oh, I would have, I would have given Stanley a fucking heart attack in an elevator. That would have been, that would have, that would have been great for the old resume. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the like kayfabe around this shit, like I 100% believe that George Lazenby willed this into being. You know, I think he lied. I think he lied his way the fuck in there. I think there's um, also a very likely scenario where no established actor in their right mind wanted to follow Sean Connery in that role because they knew it was a suicide mission. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I I think Timothy Dalton went through a very similar thing after Roger Moore. Like after a while, whoever gets it after Daniel Craig is going to have them cut, have it cut out for him. Um, Yeah. The Carly Rae Jepsen effect. Well, you know, like they went to, um, Roger Moore couldn't do it because he was doing the Saint. Yeah, which and the same thing happened during the and the right yeah and this and that same like scheduling conflict thing happened during License to Kill or Living Daylights whatever where they originally offered it to Pierce Brosnan and then he couldn't do it because of Remington Steele. You know that happened at the announcement. Oh, it happened at the actual announcement. Yeah, yeah. He had a they had a they had a one year extension on Remington Steele and they were like ready to go and he got the call that they were doing Remington Steel for another year like it was he tell he talks about it in that everything or nothing documentary it's yeah. heartbreaking it's heartbreaking Oof. um and also Oof. you sense that he he still had more in him he wanted to do more yeah uh, but anyway uh, but the uh the movies didn't have more that they wanted to do because die another day is hot dog shit it really is pretty bad 
Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Not but good. Yeah, I love the the just willing yourself into this impossible scenario, this impossible situation. Like it's the best. It's the best part of the story. Is it? And then like he goes into the audition. He gets into the office, and they're like, "Oh, we'll have a seat." And he goes, like, "No, nah, I'm gonna. I'm more comfortable over here." And he leans by the window and smokes a cigarette, in part so he can do like his James Dean pose, but also because he's defying the two most powerful producers in filmmaking, who just said, "Sit down." He goes, "No," and he's just completely bluffing and bullshitting, and and does this interview, but gets into whatever like the next phase is, and is suddenly doing stuff like, you know. Uh, uh, stunts and shit and he had actually uh, like he was a like he knew what he was doing he was a real physical dude and like had thrown punches before and had been in real gnarly fights and uh, at one point the gag at the beginning with the hat where he drops to his knee and he does it again with the knife like he did it with the knife instinctively no one told him to he just did it and then he decided like oh that's so great you clearly know what you're doing that's what you should do for the for the hat thing you know like there's he just like starts to make it his own through these little uninformed like outsider you know uncon- yeah i mean and that's and that's kind of the you know that's a nice segue because the you know he goes through these these audition processes he's you know lying and cheating his way through the auditions he ends up you know making it to an actual film screen test where they put him in an old Sean Connery suit that Connery had had tailored and then left at the fucking Eon offices because he didn't want it anymore because apparently he just has so much money that he's like, fuck that suit. <laughs> so they film him in this in the, uh, you know, screen test and he wants to impress Saltzman and, and Cubby so badly that, you know, it's this kind of like fairly pat, you know, I'm going to you're going to stunt man, you're going to come at me and you're going to swing. I'm going to block it and then punch you fake punch you in the in the face and then that'll be it but george lazenby gets so fucking amped and also is such a contrarian that he's like i'm not gonna fake punch someone so he like actually decks the guy in the audition and like fucking punches him in the goddamn face and it gets him the part yeah you're hired that one decision gets him the part are you are you flipping through your book right now to find photographic pictures of him uh there's pictures from the screen test where he breaks the guy's jaw or busts his nose or whatever uh, yeah, there's a whole thing in this book of. Oh yeah, that's probably oh, the hit yeah, right dude. there. Yeah, um, because the guy's in the movie, like the guy's later in the film. Oh yeah, you can see his lip is all. You can see him bleeding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So great. That's so great. But yeah, so it, it gets him the gig. Uh, yeah, it's that that do you want- lack of that lack of knowledge and understanding of how uh, just the the movie industry and the filmmaking business works in general. Because anybody who was a real actor would obviously never do that. Or maybe they would. But for the most part, like, you would never just really punch a guy. Because you know you don't punch people for real in movies. But that lack of understanding and that lack of self-awareness, you know, sometimes that's exactly what you need. And like like, like you said, Matt, like, this this story is so cool because I just, I love and am fa- and am fascinated with just that the 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 sheer self actualization of this whole thing and the fact that his lack of knowledge of things was that was what actually helped him and later on it kind of was his downfall but but uh you know up front it, it, it like it, it could never have happened to anybody else I, I find it easier to believe that he accidentally did it than intentionally yeah. I understand why uh why you'd want to sound like a tough guy you know and change the story but still like instead of recording like oh my hand you know like 
he punched the guy and they kept doing the scene. Like the stunt guys loved him because he did as much as they would let him do. You know, he wanted to be, I'm fucking James Bond, man. I got to go out there and do all this stuff. Uh, yeah. Cause I mean, he wanted to just be James Bond. Like he, he didn't, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to act in the character that acting as the character of the movie was just like a consolation prize. Like he saw the movie and just was like, I want to be James Bond. Oh, that's not a real thing. I guess I'll just be him in the movie then. Can I tell the the next part? Can I do that? Because this is my favorite part of him getting hired. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess accounts vary, but um, uh, uh, a few days before filming, he went to director Peter Hunt uh, and confessed all of this to him that I've never acted before. I lied. I've lied about everything. I don't know how to act. I don't know what I'm doing. And you're two days away from starting your movie. Maybe you guys should recast. He, like, he was like, this is it. I can't. Like, like I've, like, holy shit. There's millions of dollars, right? And he had finally choked uh, uh, and went to Peter Hunt and confessed all this to him. And Peter Hunt just laughed. And, like, you just convinced the two biggest uh, producers in films uh, that you're an actor and that you could handle James Bond. You're going to be fine. And then he relaxed. And he was like, okay, great. I guess if my director believes in me, I'm James Bond. And off they, and off they went. I... Uh, I love that Peter Hunt was the person behind the wheel for this movie because if it was any of the other, you know, stable of Bond directors, nobody would have gone forward. And Peter Hunt was the, the editor on um, a bunch of them. Uh, and like, I, I believe you can trace every bit of modern action editing, almost every bit of modern action editing to him especially this movie. Um, the way he cut, I think I, there's a straight line from here to born. Uh, oh yeah. Um, um, and yeah, he just he shot this shot the hell out of this thing, and it's so exciting and so fun to watch. And, and the action holds up today, which doesn't really happen in any of the other Bond films, you know. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I can I can back that up as somebody who saw this movie for the first time, like now, uh, just surprised how how well it held up, uh, cinematography wise, and yeah, just how kinetic the 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 action scenes are and. Um, all the all the speed ramping and yeah. the smash zooms and the weird you know handy cam running through the waves while Bond is fighting people and yeah it, re- yeah. it really it really works yeah it's pretty great um, uh, and Peter Hunt by the way uh, uh, edited um, one of my another one of my favorite spy movies the Ipcris file uh, which is directed by Sidney J Fury starring Michael Caine that was the blue collar um james bond and actually it was it was based on len dayton novel or dighton however you say his name and it was basically the entire james bond production team making a movie after goldfinger so they're like at the height of their powers doing a whole other movie um uh but the if you get the dvd uh sydney j fury is my is the best comment is my favorite kind of commentary it's two old men who are drunk have not seen the film since it came out do not particularly remember one another or care for each other and it is fantastic <laughs> uh, but to hear Peter Hunt talk about it, like, oh, it's it's dynamite. I don't even want to spoil it. But uh, but yeah, so treat yourself to an Ip Chris file DVD and crank up that commentary because uh, it's amazing. Yeah, the uh, the score, too, by John Barry is really good. I, and and the song by Louis Armstrong, Louis fucking Armstrong was one of the last two songs he recorded all the time in the world. Like he was so ill, he yeah, couldn't play yeah. trumpet on it. Um, but his voice sounds great. All the time in the world. Love. Oh, God, it's so good. <laughs> so good. Yeah, that knocked me for a loop, but I really enjoyed kind of the weird juxtaposition of that song 
it just wasn't what I was expecting to be in a James Bond movie at all. As has happened, I believe, at least on three different occasions with this, uh, Live and Let Die, and I, maybe the Madonna? I can't remember. I believe, I believe there are three times where they were gifted songs. And they're like, what? What are we going to do? Like, you're going to put it in the fucking movie. But, like, they didn't want to, like, they didn't want to do Live and Let Die. And then, like, wait, wait, Paul McCartney just gave you a song. It's going in the movie. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, all the time in the world. Which is, it, it, it's the only Bond song that's, that makes the movie better that's not the title. Like, most Bond songs that aren't the title of the movie, they're not, they're usually not that great. But this one is awesome, and it ties in with the actual movie because it's the last line that Bond says at the end of the movie. Oh, it's so good. I will. Uh, so I will good. send you guys. I have a uh, um, an alt Earth Bond soundtrack collection. Uh, 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 I'll, I'll send you guys, uh, including Johnny Cash's Thunderball. I mean, one of my favorite yeah. Bond songs is Pet Sounds. Uh, yeah, I, it's interesting though because this movie. I mean, that's, seri- that's got... seriously the the most amount of James Bond knowledge I had before this was just because I'm such a huge Beach Boys fan that I'm just like, oh yeah, Pet Sounds was like a rejected James Bond song. That was like the one piece of trivia I knew. <laughs> that's on there too. And now you're a now you're a hardcore bond person and you love james bond and you're wearing a tuxedo i am wearing a tuxedo and you yeah. slapped a lady yeah. oh my god yeah <laughs> oh my god andrew stop saying the n-word what's I'm, going on you, you cut the I mic oh my god videos i'm leaning into this that's old andrew lean into things sporadically price <laughs> the nicknames uh, of mouthful are working on it i i mean one one of the other things about this movie though is is there's, there's a couple kind of like behind the scenes drama things that I feel like we need to touch on just briefly. And then also the fact that the film got uh, really heavily re-edited. Um, so one, <coughs> Dame Diana Rigg is in this movie. Yeah. She fucking owns. Diana Rigg. She's the best. She's the, the best. Fucking best. And she and George Lazenby hated each other. And I've heard conflicting stories. Sometimes that she hated him. Sometimes that he hated her. All of them involving him eating onions right before they have to kiss, um, which is I can understand her hating him because he seems like a real douche when making this movie. Well, I read that she was he was like he was stepping out of line frequently and really rubbing people the wrong way. And then she was trying to, like, give him some friendly advice of like, maybe don't do that because that's, you know, people aren't going to like that. And then he was basically like fuck you and just outright ignored anything that that she said it's it's crazy that i mean movies like this are all the the the, the above the line people are always the field marshals on any kind of project like this but like a movie this big uh with this much money and this much on the line to put it on the back of a green kid is insane um um yeah the 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 it's like i can't imagine like who how i mean i don't know how old was he like 26 like uh, none of us could have made we're capable of making good decisions at 26 and here we're going to give you everything that you wanted ever 
Oh yeah, no, yeah. You're, you're you're doomed. You're absolutely going to make some bad choices. It's it's uh, especially with no safety net and all the power and money in the world. It's nuts. And just no knowledge of how any of this works at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the book, I can't. It, it sounds like he had a kind of wake up. I don't know that it was a big moment so much as he and Hunt having a fight. And then kind of realizing, oh, everybody's on his side, not mine, because I'm an insufferable asshole. And then it kind of got better. Um, also, I think they realized how long it was going to be. It was a really long shoot. Um, and so there's some degree of where we're all, you know, where they were up in that fucking chalet for three, four months. So let's 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 not hate each other yet. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of hearsay and mixed stories uh, as, you know, as want to happen when, you know, it's a bunch of it, the, the stories are all based on people just telling their version of it in interviews and stuff like that. But clearly they just they didn't just outright hate him by the end of the production because they wanted him to come back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, think, like, I think it's undeniable if you watch the movie. He's good and would yeah. have only gotten better. One of my yeah. favorite Bond, like my, there's a, the, we'll get to it when we get to it, but like there's a moment in this that's so great. It's not, you don't see anything like it in Bond until Daniel Craig. Uh, and you get it because it's a guy who has no idea what he's doing and doesn't know how else to play what he's playing other than to play it real. And he plays a scene real that Bond would not play real until Daniel Craig. And it's amazing to see in the middle of everything. And like, uh, uh, it's yet another reason this, this movie, like, the first time I heard about this film, like my, my, one of my best friends it was telling me about it. Like I'd never watched it. My dad dismissed it because it was the guy. It was it was Lazenby. It didn't count. Right. I don't even know if my dad saw it in the theater, but like it was recut for broadcast. So a lot of people's first encounter with it was on TV where it was edited for two over two nights. And there's a voiceover and missing scenes and reordered. And like it was a mess. So I just never bothered with it. And then my buddy was like the biggest Bond guy I know was telling me about it. And I was like, are you fucking with me? Like, everything about this movie sounds insane. He's like, no, 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 no. Blofeld's using hypnotic chicken to, like, send a, a beautiful <laughs> supermodel terrorists in the world on Christmas. And, yeah, Blofeld's Telly Savalas, and it's Diana. Like, no way. You're fucking with me. And, like, everything is true and so much better than, than you could ever, like, hear, ever be convinced of. And also it's super strange that Blofeld doesn't recognize Bond because they met in the last movie. But they don't. But they don't recognize each other in this movie because they cut out the subplot where, in the beginning of the movie, he was going to have plastic surgery to transition from Sean Connery to George Lazenby. But they just cut that out. So now he just doesn't recognize James Bond just because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I kind of wish. Yeah, I kind of wish that was still in though. Like the the James Bond version of the Doctor Who transformation is just that every time he changes, he's like, "Well, time to go get plastic surgery." By the time, by the time he's Daniel Craig, he's like a hundred and seven year old man, but just with plastic surgery. <laughs> there was uh, who? What was the crazy comic book company that made people go to a compound in Florida? CrossGen. Yeah, there's yeah. a cross-gen book called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the premise of which was 007 is a role played by different regenerating spies. I mean, and that was and that was a conspiracy theory for a long time that this movie started because in the beginning of the movie, when uh, Dame Diana Riggs <laughs> Tracy like escapes and gets away, 
he George Lazenby looks into the camera and says, this never happened to the other fella, which if there's not somebody else who was James Bond, that joke doesn't make any sense. I mean, metatextually, we know what he's saying, but in the universe of the movie, what the fuck does that mean? And so there was a conspiracy theory for a long time that James Bond was like a governmental mantle handed down from generation to generation and the, the 007, uh, you know, calling card was basically a role that all of these different people played and that all of the Bond movies were in one continuity and they were all literally different agents. And for, I think for a while, like around the, the transition period between um, Brosnan and and uh, Timothy Dalton, they were thinking about actually doing it. Like they were just going to lean into that thing and do one that was that. Before we move on, just talking about On Her Majesty's, um, I just wanted to quickly say that uh, going into this, uh, you know, because because Dave, you say like, oh, this is my this is my favorite Bond. Um, and, you know, historically, a, a thing about Dave is a lot of the times like he'll be like, this is my favorite this. And it can sometimes have less to do with the quality of it and more to do with just some crazy backstory or the 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 thing. Yeah, the, the, the operatic theatrical nature of it so so i'm going into this i'm like okay so your favorite james bond is the guy who just had one james bond movie and it has this crazy dramatic backstory so it's understandable that i went into this a little skeptical of like i don't know if i'm actually gonna think this is the best one (laughs) um you know because sometimes you know dave can be like yeah my my uh, my favorite novelist is uh is Anthony P. Keaton the in you know he he was a he was a man who you know every Wednesday he had to fight a cream cheese monster and one day he convinced <laughs> the cream cheese monster to use a typewriter instead of a sword and then that's how his first and only novel was ever written and it's like w- was it any good eh it's okay um so I so I, w- I went into it with that thinking um but I I have to say like once again I've only I've seen the I've seen the uh, the Brosnan. Uh, bonds, which I have very like weird negative yeah, memories of. Yeah, they're very, uh, they're very, very nineties. Yeah, and then I've seen the uh, and uh, I've seen the the Daniel Craig movies, uh, and that was actually the first time I ever like remember watching Bond and and liking them. All of which uh, is trying was, to remake this. Yeah, I, I yeah I, totally. I was yeah. pleasantly surprised at liking Casino Royale. Um, when my friend like convinced, like I, w- one time I, whenever it came out on DVD, my friend was like, "Oh, I just got this on DVD," and I was like, oh, "I don't really like James Bond," and he's like, "Just." watch this um and i and i i really liked it um but uh other than that i watched thunderball and uh i've seen some other parts of other movies uh and i and i i do have to admit i really loved uh on your on her majesty's secret service i i i i definitely feel like from my narrow experience it was definitely one of my favorites um and I just I liked the sensibility of it more than I liked some of the other James Bond movies that I watched. The, the, for, for me, the big tragedy of this is that had they been willing to pay Sean Connery what he was worth, they'd have made it in 1968 and would have felt more like the 60s than the 70s. It would have been Connery actually showing up and caring because they were paying him what he was worth. And it would have been everyone's it would have been the Empire Strikes Back of Bond. It would be the kind of. Yeah. A uh, 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 high watermark uh, for for quality and and everything else that they would the rest would always kind of be forever chasing. But because all of these and look, I think I think the opening scene is a misstep. They're trying to be cute and hang a hat on the fact it's a new guy, 
and like audiences weren't bonds weren't like fourth wall breaking and so yeah so it, it was more confusing than weird and it just the entire marketing campaign was around this faceless man taking over and all of it was about the new person who isn't sean connery you know and it, it did nothing to um help they didn't help lazenby in the marketing and uh, the way that they positioned the movie and it's a weird opening sequence um um I, I think it's a great opening sequence but until that moment and all it is like oh right you're not sean connery and then the opening credits are going to remind you of all the sean connery movies that you loved and then we're going to have another scene in the movie where he goes through the props and we're going to play the music cues from all the other oh so did any of that make sense to you Andrew, when he's going through his desk and clearing all his shit out and those weird music cues started, did you did any of that mean anything to you? So, I mean, not really. I I can kind of read context clues and get it. Like, I, I got that those were props from other movies and they were playing the music cues from those movies. And the one that I did recognize was Thunderball, the the breathing apparatus. So I so I got it. Um, and I actually I, I liked that. I thought it was cool. Uh just as like a weird little fan servicey thing, but I, I I see what you're talking about, and and yeah, like they were going out of their way to overcompensate for instead of just owning it and just being like this is Bond, they were like, you know, you know, remember the real Bond, remember that guy, like just keep that in mind when you watch this. And for literally a third of the film, Lazenby is dubbed because his character <laughs> yeah. is undercover. And so another actor is dubbing Lazenby's voice. Another thing that does him no favors. Yeah. But like, yeah. so he would recognize how Bond sounds, but not how he looks. Because he's wearing a kilt. Also remember, Dave, you forgot, Blofeld had plastic surgery on his earlobes. It's going to change everything. Bond, <laughs> Bond's using a different voice. It's not, can't be James Bond. James Bond doesn't sound like that guy. That guy's a, that's, James Bond's like kind of, no, that's not, this different accent. Can't be James Bond. Impossible. <laughs> I loved that when he was wearing a kilt, though. I loved that. I loved the I loved the frilly shirt tuxedo in the beginning. That's I, what I was I gonna say. The, the frilly shirt tuxedo. I love the yeah. kilt. Yeah, man. I I the boy. There's like I said, the '70s start to creep in around the edges. Like there's a lot of purple in this one. Yeah. There's some yeah. gold. There's some you know like there's a lot of like the '70s start to creep in, um, and like I could I, I I wish it was a little cleaner. I wish it was a little more mid-century than. Um, than than seventies, but that's that's I think just my own my own taste. But uh. but Telly Savalas, like he doesn't get enough credit either. Like I love Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance is fucking awesome as Blofeld, and I wish he had done fifteen of them. But I feel like people don't even remember that Telly Savalas was Blofeld. Like because people don't remember this movie. This is like the missing movie from the canon, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he plays it like everything Telly Savalas ever plays. He plays it like he played the Dirty Dozen. You believed he was going to lock a door and go beat those women to death. And sexually assault them all, like that. Yeah. Like he, he, was, yeah. he is so malevolent and so fucking insane. Um, th- uh, uh, this reminds me the suite of novels that this is the centerpiece of. Uh, it goes um, Thunderball, then Spy Who Loved Me, uh, Skip Spy Who Loved Me. That's the one that Ian Fleming writes the first half of the novel from a teenage girl's uh, POV. Uh, real problematic that one, but that suite of Blofeld books, um, uh, Honor, Majesty, Secret Service, uh, uh, You Only Live Twice, uh, um, is really pretty great. Um, and the Blofeld that appears in You Only Live Twice is even more insane, and it's so great 
you can I guarantee you there are a dozen drafts of a dozen different movies that have tried. He reinvents himself as a Dr. Shatterhand uh, uh, in uh, You Only Live Twice. And he's built a suicide island uh, off the coast of Japan, full of the world's most poisonous insects and plants and everything. He's created this completely horrifying, toxic ecosystem where he's got this big castle in the middle of it because, as everyone knows, <laughs> Fleming helpfully informs us, the Japanese are so suicidal as a people. They'll be driven. He just basically attracts people to this suicide park and and has and people just kill themselves in his in his forests. Like, they, they lay down and let spiders crawl on their face and they eat poisonous plants and it's just... And, and he's completely reinvented himself all over again. He's, he's got like, he sounds like Howard Hughes in it, but yeah, Dr. Shatterhand. Uh, oh man, it's so fucking nuts. It's so nuts. And Bond just murders him. Like it's, it's, it's a, it is a, it is a, just, I'm going to beat a man to death kind of violent. Uh, uh, it's really horrifying. And then at the end, um, he has amnesia and thinks he's a, a Japanese fisherman. The Which end. they kept that in the movie. Of all the things to keep in the movie, they kept they kept the yellow face and the uh, Sean Connery in a wig with uh, oh man, oof, oh, because that's, so that's hilarious. Dave. Oh, the, the incandescent racism has been used to rescue people who are lost uh, on wilderness, uh, dangerous wilderness adventures. Just crack open a DVD of uh, uh, You Only Live Twice, and the racism shines out. It's visible from five hundred miles away. The choppers descend <laughs> to save the people in the crev- in the crevasse. We talked about this on maybe the Stratemeyer Syndicate episode of just like how that period from like the 60s to like even creeping up towards the 80s. Like it wasn't just like unself-aware racism. Like they actively just thought that was hilarious. Like they were like, this is the funniest pinnacle of comedy right here. It was, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a deliberate derangement of consciousness and culture born in the second world war right yeah because if you have to kill a million people you have to turn them into aliens so it's not real yeah you have to turn them into monsters right it's 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 anti-semitism it's it's the thing you always it's the thing that happens to the other and like just a generation was raised with it uh uh and it's you know it's like it's like it's like will eisner and ebony like i don't think will eisner was a racist i think he was ignorant and I think he, re- I think he was ignoring what he knew, like was <laughs> real and true. And once he realized it, I think he spent the rest of his life trying to make up for it. Uh, but like, oh yeah, no, it is just a, it is a like a like ignorance as a, a agreed upon hallucination by a mass of people that this is just we're fine, we're totally fine with this, this is totally acceptable, and we're just gonna do this fucking long duck dong, right? Yeah, uh, that's eighty four. Yeah. Uh, 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 let's not even like that's. And that's even, that's pretty overt. Like let's not even get into like the the subtle shadings of uh, of, of 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 yeah yeah. It's it's really really astonishing to see. Soul Man. Yeah, dude. Soul Man, bro. Soul Man. Woof. Woof. <laughs> I don't know how to I don't know how to transition back to the yeah. You know what? James Bond pivot. has that going for him. He never pretended to be a black guy. <laughs> yeah, the Punisher did. Lois Lane did. Could be more racist, James Bond. Not the most yeah. racist. He's no C. Yeah. Thomas Howell. Yeah, yeah. that's right. 
That's the benchmark in which we can all rationalize anything upon. Before the release, though, of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Lazenby returned yeah, pivot, home. Pivot Australia. back from that shit. <laughs> For a family visit, um, where he informed his dad that he had been offered 18 feature film starring roles, all of which he had turned down. During the time since shooting the film, he had become close with Emperor Roscoe, a.k.a. Michael Joseph Pasternak, a.k.a. the English DJ and anti-establishment type uh, who that movie, The the Pirate Radio, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a real dude. Yeah, it was a real dude. That guy. The real guy. And uh, and George Lazenby became homies with him. And that guy, the story that, that certain people like to say, uh, namely Lazenby, is that that guy convinced Lazenby to become a radical and to leave the James Bond franchise behind. James Bond's and a square, right? He's an imperialist working for the government. Yep. Um, I don't know if I completely buy that. I think George Lazenby was just really high on his own supply and had God mode and was like, I lied my way into the biggest franchise on earth. I'm going to be, you know, the Marlon Brando of everything or whatever. Yeah, it reminds me of, it reminds me of uh, Troy Duffy a little bit. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, Lazenby also was on the outs with the Eon people because he went to the premiere for On Her Majesty's Secret Service with a full beard and long hair. Uh, and they were like, bro, you got to you got to come respectable. You got to be clean cut. You're James Bond. And he was like, nah, hippies, bro. And this, was, this was and like it's December 1969. Like man walked on the moon in August. Manson happened uh, uh, two weeks before that or two weeks after that. And Altamont had happened, and yeah, no, like, like the world had to feel like it was absolutely ending and changing. And 1970 is right over the hill because it was a Christmas movie. That's the other thing. This is a Christmas movie, and it opens on December 21st uh, in London. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas! And he's he's going to go into 1970 uh, full Jesus, full Jesus out, man. I I have to ask uh, really quick. Um, Nothing about this podcast today is going to be really quick, but I appreciate the energy. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I feel like I say that constantly to apologize for my long windedness. Um, uh, Matt, I, 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 I've been I've been a fan of Casanova for a, a long time. Thank you. Uh, but I've never I've never seen these movies. So uh, I've, I've ne- I've, I just didn't know any of the you know frames of reference that are you know in your in your book. Uh, and so, uh, you know, watch it's 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 been interesting to like experience it in reverse of like watching the movies and being like, oh, that's that thing. Um, and they're all pretty obvious. So I'm not going to go through and be like, was this this or was this this or whatever? Uh, but there's one that I was curious about, and it's based on this. So in the first one of the first two or three issues, uh, there's a moment whenever uh Casanova basically disappears and then he reappears and then he has like a full beard and the hair and then he appears in front of Empire and his dad's like you need to cut your hair or whatever was that a reference to this not consciously but I fucking wish it was (laughs) not consciously never mind we'll just cut this part out and I'll just I'll just continue thinking that that's what what it was that is my entirely my own failing. And yes, from now on, if anyone asks, I'm going to say it is it was indeed. And in fact, now that I think about the way Ba drew it, it even looks like how Lazenby looked at that premiere mm-hmm. in the tuxedo. Like it is a I mean, it seemed uncanny to me, but I I, I I don't think I knew. I don't think I had seen it at that point. I don't think I'd seen the photos of him there at that point. It wasn't like it wasn't conscious. Um, that's not to say I've not 
you know, had my hand in, in um, 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 crypto mimetic ideas before, but yeah, no, I can't claim that one. It should have been though. It's, it's a good, it's, it's a good fit. It's a, it's real. That's, that's my bad, not yours. <laughs> the, uh, the thing, the thing about Lazenby specifically, and this, you know, his bearded facade being a perfect synecdoche for this is like, the reason I love George Lazenby so much and the reason I love this movie so much is because of what we've all been talking about, this kind of like willpower, you know, you can reshape your destiny. You can, you know, for me, I, you know, filtered through my own bullshit, personal narcissistic lens. I'm a kid from a small town in Arizona and I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, ma. I'm going to move to the big city and be a writer. And like, you know, to be you know, honest, like I kind of feel like I have, I mean, I've made a living as a screenwriter for seven years. I've published all these comics, literally toured the world selling the books and like, you know, there's a giant wall of <laughs> published books over there, which is, you know, I wish there wasn't a wall. I wish they had all left, but you know, there's 2000 fucking books in my apartment. And that to me is, it's very existentially solving because people from where I'm from don't ever amount to anything except for being a meth head. And I love that George Lazenby believed in himself to a crippling degree, whether it was accidental or on purpose or completely, you know, this kind of fuck you, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do approach to life. And I love that, it's, that he succeeded empirically. And then I also love as like a personal lesson to, for me, I love that he was not humble and it all bit him in the ass and it was he completely had a fall from grace. And that's the lesson for me. The parable is believe in yourself all the way up until when you're in the door and then be fucking humble and then be like, Yes, I realize what I've done. It's the Danny Ocean thing, right? Like, if you want to win, you, you bet big, you win and walk away, right? And like, and that he kept pressing his luck. And that's not, you know, you he, he, he jackpotted. And rather than, yeah, being humble, hey, go do a, go do, go do Shakespeare now, right? Go, go work on your craft. Go be small and humble. See what happens. Like, go do a fucking uh, a Ken Loach movie. Um, uh, no, no, it was, it was, yeah, you know, more, more wine, more women, more song for him. And it just blew up. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the, that's the whole turning point of it. Of, of just like, you know, if, if I had, if I had done that, if I had just wrestled my way to that point in what he was able to accomplish from that moment on, uh, you know, not even, not even through any amount of humbleness, humbleness or, or anything like that. I would just be like in a constant state of like, holy shit, I did this somehow. I don't know how I did this, but I'm going to do everything in my power to not undo this to the point where I would almost maybe self-sabotage in a different way. But I would definitely be more on that track yeah, like, than as, like as soon as I've time to as soon, double or nothing. As soon as I found out that he got offered 18 film roles, I was like, if I was in that position, I would have said yes to every one of those, which is probably equally as bad. Yeah. But also, fuck yeah. Now you got 18 things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a. It, the movie is so weird and so good. And so much of that is because he was acting from a place of terrified instinct. And the movie is. For most of it, James Bond in that same place, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's just terrific, and 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 he, that he doesn't know better or is impossible of doing differently doesn't matter because it's the perfect it's the perfect cadence for this for this film. Uh, 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 and 
each and every one of its completely unbelievable fucking minutes. It's the best. It's just the best. And I don't know how no time left to die is going to... But, but everything about these last Bond, Craig Bonds, have have taken so much from the soul and the spirit, if not the outright iconography of Honor, Majesty, Secret Service, that, that Leia Sado didn't die on that fucking bridge. Uh, uh, at the end of Spectre uh, uh, is amazing to me. And I will bet money that there's footage on a cutting room floor and a, as much as those exist anymore of that happening. Like it's, it's like, it's so, they so clearly want to put him through on Her Majesty's Secret Service uh, uh, that I'm, I'm sure we're in for a grim four and a half hours when this movie finally comes out, if it ever does. Yeah, and I, and I will does. be there opening night. <laughs> same, same. Regardless of if there's a fucking pandemic or not, I'll die for the James Bond franchise. I don't give a fuck. Let's do this. <laughs> so, you know, he does. He goes to the, the premiere with the beard and the long hair. The Broccoli and Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman are pissed at him, but they invite him back to do another James Bond movie. And he formally declines. He's like, nah, fuck you guys. I'm not doing this. And he does not return for what at that point was going to be Man with the Golden Gun. Um, at the time, he's quoted as saying, I much prefer I much prefer being a car salesman to a stereotyped James Bond. My parents think I'm insane. Everybody thinks I'm insane, passing up millions and millions of pounds. Nobody believed me. I thought uh, they thought it was a publicity stunt, but that's just me doing my own thing, which can't fault him with that. Can't. It got him where he where he, you know, it got him there. You can't 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 fault him. You can see the evolution of him uh, slowly uh, changing his perspective on that throughout the years and in interviews and you know up to you know more recent interviews he's like he's completely just been like i wish that i had done more movies it just he, he's totally just regrets it at this point <laughs> very very yeah. self-aware and like under like it's it's that that uh everything or nothing document is really interesting like he's completely ah the folly of youth yeah yeah um yeah it, it's it's interesting because never say never again is kind of like the inverse of this where it's like overstaying your right, welcome right, right that's a good place to pivot into kevin mcclory because blofeld ultimately until very recently was owned by a guy named kevin mcclory uh should we take an act break here oh and sure then... right act breaks you guys do that i forgot yeah yeah i'm and, sorry uh, I'm, I'm super fucking your room. i'm gonna be quiet dave we've, Kevin we've tricked him into thinking that we know what we're doing right now and we've we're lazen being currently <laughs> right yeah 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 you can't see this but under this boyish facade there's an actual there's a beard and like a mullet yeah, like a dirty dirty mullet he's wearing a prosthetic shaved face right now yeah exactly <laughs> Act two, Kevin McClory's weird smile. Kevin McClory was born June 8th, 1924 in Dunlagenhire, Dublin, Irish Free State. I guess that's how you pronounce that. I don't know. His father was the actor Desmond O'Donovan, and his mother was Winifred McClory, who was an actor and a teacher and a writer. McClory is um, distantly related to the Bronte sisters who wrote Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, which is... Not really important to this, just an interesting factoid. During World War II, McClory served as a teenage radio officer in the British Merchant Navy. After the war, he served as John Houston's assistant on the set of the film The African Queen, The Moulin Rouge, and was the assistant director 
on Houston's Moby Dick. During the course of the uh, during the course of his life in pictures, McClory met some very very rich people, which put him on the road to being involved in our story that we're currently discussing of James Bond. McClory filmed the documentary, filled a couple documentaries, one called One Road, where 25 men att- attempted to drive across the globe. Uh, the film was sponsored by Ford, Ford, and they did it in 104 days. Uh, 104 days. 104 days. Off the back of this documentary, he was able to get his feature film debut off the ground, which was a film called The Boy and the Bridge, which was paid for by the heiress Josephine Hartford Bryce and her husband Ivar Bryce. And as fate would have it, Ivar Bryce was friends with, you guessed it, Ian Fleming. So in 1958, McClory used his connections through Bryce to get to Fleming and to pitch the idea of doing a new James Bond film. And remember, this is before all of the Eon stuff takes off. Right, at, this so point, Fleming, at this point, Salzman and Broccoli just have the rights to Dr. No. Right, yes. Um, so McClory pitched the idea of doing a Bond film that was not an adaptation to an existing story, but a new story that would really showcase the potential of what Bond could be as a cinematic icon. So McClory, Bryce, Fleming, and the writer Jack Whitman go to work. After numerous drafts and rewrites, Bryce, Fleming, and McClory settled on a screenplay titled 78 Longitude West, which would later be named Thunderball. What a terrible fucking title. No shit, right? Well, but like neither is great, but yeah, boy. Yeah, but at least Thunderball sounds kind of cool and weird and alluring, like 78 Longitude West. It means uh, it's a, it's supposed to be like a thunderbolt. It's it's oh, a, it's, shit. A, it's a British is the yeah it means thunderbolt but it just sounds like a it sounds like a shitty Spider-Man villain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it absolutely Thunderball does. Thunderbolt is memorable and it feels like it fits into the aesthetic of like what James Bond movies are. I mean maybe it created the aesthetic I guess but it, Yeah. Um the the urban legend that I've always heard is that McClory and uh Fleming like holed up in an in a hotel room over a weekend and wrote the first outline for the whole movie and came up with Blofeld and Spectre and all that shit in the hotel room, which I don't know if it's true. I don't know if I believe it, but it's an interesting kind of like idea that this this, you know, the, the Lex Luthor in air quotes of the Bond franchise was came, like developed but in this really weird roundabout way in a hotel room where if Ian Fleming hadn't said yes to this, it just never would have been a part of the Bond franchise at all. It's really interesting. Yeah, that was what was crazy to for me to learn just coming into this from an outside perspective that like Blofeld and Spectre and a lot of these iconic aspects of James Bond like weren't always a part of it. And as a matter of fact, they were sort of created during the uh, development of James Bond as a cinematic character, as opposed to uh, in the in the books, and the 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 first book to feature these characters was actually almost like a novelization of a movie that was never made. I, I, that's that was super fascinating to find out. That's a polite way of putting it. The real answer is I'm summarizing Ian because Fleming stole that shit. Yeah, well, we're getting <laughs> and that was a thing, and then suddenly Doctor No gets made, and he's like, uh, okay, I gotta gotta okay, so this is ours now. Uh, we'll yep. do this movie, and hey, by the way, this is my friend Kevin. But yeah, so it's uh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely it feels it, everything about it feels like there were outside dudes keeping the machine the machine running a little bit longer. Uh, uh. 
yeah, this is this is where like things start to get murky, where you have all these different people with different stories. It doesn't and... help that as time goes on, that McClory is clearly mentally ill. Yeah, right. Yeah. But like, but in yeah. that in that sort of way that like, you know, you can read like Kirby interviews later, and like every later Kirby interview, he gets angrier and angrier. You know, and yeah. like this, con- and then and then the Gary Groth is just clearly egging him on, like, "Well, Jack, didn't you invent the Earth and the Moon? I did. I invented it all by myself." You know, like by the like just playing with that rage, and then by the end, he's completely, you know, it's like this is his one thing. He was a one-hit wonder, and his one-hit wonder was Thunderball, right? Yeah, and he just could never escape it. Yeah, uh, as the other James Bond films started to move forward and get made, Fleming realized that. He had basically signed a bad deal with uh, Kevin McClory and these other producers. Um, most of, if not all, of his stake in the films had been allocated to the production company um, that was going to eventually produce this new, you know, 78 Longitude Thunderball movie, Xanadu, in order to get the film greenlit. Um, and he became very unhappy and attempted to force McClory out of the project. Um, saying that he hadn't done any substantial work and that Fleming deserved his share this drama obviously caused the, you know, would-be Thunderball film adaptation project to fall apart and never get off the ground. However, this is where things get even more murkier, and the script for Thunderball featured a few of the very uh, not-so-subtle similarities to characters that would show up in Fleming novels like, as we've previously discussed, Spectre and Ernst Stavlo Blofeld, the Doctor Doom, to Bonds Reed Richards. Uh, after selling the rights of the films to Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli and the Bond franchise becoming a worldwide phenomenon, Fleming was looking for more financial opportunities, so he dusted off one of the old drafts of Longitude 78 and decided to turn it into a novel, and thus giving birth to James Bond's big bad in the books, Blofeld. The character then became a linchpin of both the cinematic and literary versions of the Bond universe and became the Dr. Moriarty of everything, almost completely or rather, almost equally as popular as his foe, the beloved spy, James Bond. Fleming didn't have the rights to do this, though, uh, or at least that's what Kevin McClory thought. On November 20th, 1963, Jack Whitman and Kevin McClory sued Fleming. After nine days, the case was settled. Fleming paid McClory 35,000 pounds and his court costs, and 52,000, which were 52,000 pounds. And all future versions of the story would be credited as based on the screen treatment, in air quotes, by Kevin McClory, Jack Whitman, and Ian Fleming. Which, it's so interesting that it's just kind of like, and then I pay you some money and you go away. Whereas, like, now, anytime one of these protracted legal battles happens, it's like everybody's coming for each other's, you know, firstborn. Where that like thirty five thousand pounds doesn't sound like that much money. I mean, I guess well, actually, I guess it is because in context, that one year, Lazenby made twenty five thousand pounds, which is equivalent to four hundred and eighty eight thousand pounds in today's money. So I guess thirty five is like roughly half a million dollars. Yeah, and the book hadn't been out that long, and the movie hadn't happened, and they had good relationships, and he got paid as long as his stuff was used. So the following movies, up up through Honor Majesty's, no, up through. You only live what? No, up through uh, uh, what? The Diamonds Are Forever is the last of the Spectre m- movies until Spectre, right? Um, yeah. Um, so yeah. Up until then, like he was getting a taste whenever Spectre or Blofeld would be used, and he showed up again and again. I just find yeah. this. I just find this so fascinating that this was still happen. This was happening back then because that 
convergence of the book and film development cycle feels fairly contemporary. You know, we were talking about Mark Millar earlier and you know, like famously, you know, like uh, Jurassic Park was like optioned and put into development like before the book was even published. Um, and that that seems like a common thing that just happens now. Uh, and like I said before, it was it was very fascinating to find out that this was kind of in a similar that this was happening even even back then. And it was happening with this franchise that is so uh, iconic and, you know, so, so uh, just part of part of the, the public consciousness. I had a screenwriting teacher whose entire career was predicated on being the guy who wrote the other movie. So some studio would announce we're making a volcano movie and he would be the guy that would crank out a volcano script that some other studio would announce that they were making into a movie mm, to stop yeah. the other volcano movie from being made. He wrote, he wrote like a, uh, uh, towering inferno, not towering inferno, Dante's peak. He wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Like that the, kind of, like it wasn't like the, not movie the prestige, the, the one that, uh, yeah, he wrote the, the one that Ed Norton was in. Yeah. He wrote the, the deep impact to the, to, to the, the Armageddon. Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was, but it, yeah. but it stopped those from coming out. So like his stuff never got made, but then whatever, his thing was also didn't get made like he it worked because it was how he made his living until right. he ended up being a screenwriting teacher but uh, he was a piece of shit and i hope he's dead <laughs> <laughs> the uh the weirdest part of this story though isn't the money that changed hands it's the fact that uh it's the fact that kevin mcclory ended up with the film rights to not just thunderball stuff that he worked on like blofeld or specter but the rights to remake thunderball period that's the weirdest element of all of this. So it is a fairly first, ingenious plot for a James Bond film. And I suspect more than anything else, that's what McClory brought to it is the idea of someone steals a nuke. Right. And there's some, it's, it's what it's two nukes. Right. And we're going to blow yes, up a city and hold the world ransom. Like, I think that I think I think McClory came up with that plot engine. It's kind of like the most sophisticated of the plots of the Fleming novels. Like it's a, it's a, it's Clancy. It's like a Tom Clancy thing before it's time in a lot of ways. It's, it's got a good, like it's got a lot of great set pieces. It moves like a motherfucker and it's a, and it speaks very much to like atomic paranoia and fear, right? Like the, the Cuban missile crisis is 20 minutes old when this, everyone's can. And then, then there's a, the mob's going to go off the coast of Florida is where, you know, um, um, Draco puts the bomb. So like, yeah. it's all super, it just feels like, oh, that's what it was. He had the hook. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be, it's gotta be that because in a very producery way throughout the years, every time he went to go re pitch it to be remade, it was always like the movie's called Warhead. And then like the movie, the movie's called Warhead 2000 AD like that was that was so obviously like the one little piece of it that he as a producer he found to be the most valuable piece of real estate in the idea yeah it is right because it's a great it's a it's a it's a spooky story it's a great story like you can build all kinds of shit around those stories it's an Indiana Jones movie right for that was one of the many Indy four drafts was a was a Korean war thing that was all about a, a stolen nuclear warhead on a train like it was the, you know, yeah, it was it was nuclear paranoia brought to Bond uh, in, a, in a in a real way. Like, ah, I get it. I super fucking get it. So basically, at this point, Kevin McClory cuts a deal with Eon, Harry Saltzman, and or uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman to give them the rights to make a Thunderball movie for ten years. They have the rights, so he licenses it to them. 
And then he gets brought in as a producer and whether or not he's brought in as a producer as you're now one of the family or whether he's brought in as a producer for just this movie. That's where, you know, he said, she said stuff where Kevin McClory feels like he was being brought in to be a part of the Eon brain trust. And everybody else was like, nah, bruh, you're here for this movie. And then we're going to kick you the fuck out. They which is exactly what happened. Yeah. It's, they, the, it's, they, Siegel, it's the Siegel and Schuster thing. You got 10 great yep. years. Thank you for your service. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, he, they make them, they make the Thunderball movie. It's a success. He's like, great guys, what are we doing next? And then they're like, nope, get the fuck out. And, you know, Kevin McClory was pissed. So what did he do? As soon as the 10 years on the Eon license uh, for Thunderball expired, he started staging a remake slash re-adaptation of the film. And he hired Sean Connery to return as Bond. Max von Sydow would appear as Blofeld and Irvin Kirshner, the director of The Empire Strikes Back, would take on the directing duties for the film. Um, The film was released in 1983 as a direct competition to Octopussy. Uh, I do not like Octopussy as a movie. That shit sucks. But Never Say Never Again is almost worse. It is so bad. Never Say Never Again ain't great. I don't know. There's a lot... Like, like there's a thing about the Roger Moore bonds where you can put them in order by how high his pants are. (laughs) (laughs) And by the time you get to Octopussy, you're at like rib four. You're you're at sternum. You know, he's driving a he's driving a a a a Peugeot at that point. Like it's it's the it's getting it's getting hairier and hairier. You know. I mean, never say never again is basically like. It's like a made-for-TV movie that somehow somebody smuggled into a projection booth and released in theaters nationwide. Now, they 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 downplay it a little bit in the Connery film, and, and at least in Thunderball, uh, and, in, and in Never Say Never Again, they play it that he's just getting old. But in the novels, um, Bond is sent to dry out because he's an alcoholic. And he's and he's he's got like the body of a fifty-eight-year-old, and he's not. And they send him to a health clinic to dry out. And it is it is clearly Fleming writing a protest monologue about being made to stop drinking, just long enough until he can start drinking again. Um, so the whole opening set piece of of this crazy health club is 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 the oh yeah no Bond you're a, you're a dangerous alcoholic and uh, you're a very expensive piece of government property so go dry out and come back and we'll put you to work yeah drying drying out of the directive to like start cleaning up his behavior and start you know taking care of his body better is definitely it's played as a uh like a mockery or a criticism of that perspective like down to the point where like the the m in this movie that is the one that's asking him to do it is just like an over-the-top caricature cartoon character who's just you know get it remove the free radicals from your body it, it, it's like it's well and, and that's, that's but that's very much like of its time right like that's 1983 let's make fun yeah. of you know real men don't eat quiche and all that bullshit like health food and uh, sprouts right it's uh it's uh, it's more anytime bond movies try to like uh capitalize on moments of popular culture rather than just simply define popular culture it looks helplessly old it, 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 it's it's embarrassing. It's like a dad in a deep cut V-neck T-shirt every single fucking time, and I hate it. Anytime there's any bit of modern commentary, nudge, nudge, wink, wink at the camera. It's like, nope, these things got to be timeless. 
Nurse. All you were doing is putting a big flag in 1983 and saying, 1983, it's a Rubik's Cube. Or what's the movie? Oh, it's fucking Octopussy with the robot. The stupid. Yes. Yeah. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's funny, too, because this movie, I mean, it's the director of Empire Strikes Back. It's Irving fucking Kirshner. You'd think it should be cool, but it's so not. And it's it's almost, it's interesting in an exercise of, like, it's, it's almost an exercise in the execution of absence where the movie isn't actually about what it's about. It's about what's not there. So like people keep asking him like, what's your name, James Bond, Bond, James, what is your name? And then he kind of like just looks at the camera and is like, uh, James. And you're like, what? what? You know, the opening, there's no opening. They can't use any of the stuff that's that's owned by Eon. So there's no opening title sequence. There's no sh- the, the barrel shooting sequence uh, shot. There's no theme song. The movie opens with a wall of logos of, that just say 007. And then you go through one of the O's. <laughs> like, they, like, that's their big idea is like, what if we used the logo? <laughs> I, you know, there, there's a... Um, um... James Bonding uh, is one like one of my favorite <laughs> podcasts uh, uh, and on their kind of wish list of um, fantasy Bond things. One of them is like canonize Never Say Never Again, put the opening in it, put the music in it. And like, I'm sure there's a fan cut on the Internet, a canonized Eon Never Say Never Again. I would almost watch it. I would watch it. I mean, even just the, the if I could be bothered to figure out how to um, adjust NAT settings on my router, I could I would totally <laughs> watch it but i'm 44 years old and i just do no longer give a shit but yeah i I guarantee that's out there somewhere but even just like the just even just the decisions of like the chase sequences or the action set pieces the they're competently shot action sequences but they're scored with like the music is crazy very synthy very very dated and like and i get it like okay well they have john barry right they have big sweeping orchestras well we're gonna have contemporary hip cool Euro trash shirt buying music. <laughs> yeah. Spe- speaking of canonizing, I I, I had read that uh, I forget if it was in the '90s or maybe it was later. Whenever they whenever they purchased outright um, the rights from the McClorious estate, they purchased the rights to Never Say Never Again, and they brought it into the fold of the overarching James Bond franchise. And you know, obviously, there's no like really definitive continuity to the james bond movies but i just that just struck me as odd because it's like so you you've canonized this movie so like james bond like this thing happened to him and then like later in his life the literal exact thing happened to him again down to the point where like somebody like changed their face to infiltrate us or the american government to steal warheads and and then like their sister like the literal exact thing happened to you twice no, but in andrew, your life andrew you're, you're forgetting andrew this time he played video games that shocked oh that's him. right that's right that's the other the other big period domination, domination. and never say mm-hmm. never again is video games kids like video games great put video games in it yeah you know what's cool about video games two old men playing killer video games you mean i get so... to watch the guy who played death and the seventh seal and Sean Connery play video games against each other. What? And I thought parkour was exciting. <laughs> and not, not to mention just the fact that like at this huge fancy party that he's having, they just go into a room and it's just like, we have an arcade here. People are playing Galaga. This is, so this is something that a really rich guy would do on his ship. 
Hello, fellow kids. Um, oh, it's uh, yeah. There were there was like it was after the Craig Casino Royale that they finally got everything back and they put out a Blu-ray set in advance of Spectre. And for a while there was talk and it was the 50th anniversary. So it had been, you know, 2011, I guess. And there was talk that never seen ever again would be a part of that set. Um, but yeah, realistically, even it, it is a, it, like it would be, it, like it should be an, a bonus feature on the Thunderball DVD. Like this whole extra movie, yeah. right? It should be like it's that. Like you don't, I don't need this in 4K. I don't need, I don't need this. I don't, I don't need this in Dolby Atmos. You guys, it's fine. Just give me the thing, <laughs> give me the opening and the music, and we're good. We're good. That's all I want. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting though that you know the movie comes out. It's not really a success. Kevin McClory retreats to his ivory tower, wherever the fuck he is, and then he kind of comes back out. He like he he tries to do it again. Uh, when basically after this, uh, every time he does it, he's poisoning, he's salting the ground with Eon. Any yeah. chance there could be for reconciliation of bygones being bygones, Saltzman dying, Broccoli dying. Every time McClory comes back out, he pisses off their kids. He pisses everybody off. He pisses off Sony, he pisses everybody off. Like he cannot get out of his own way with this fucking thing. Yeah. And he, uh, so basically Goldeneye comes out, the big reboot directed by Martin Campbell, Pierce Brosnan's first movie. You know, everybody has Bond fever again. So old dirty Kevin McClory starts wheeling out his pitch deck and he pitches the idea to Sony of remaking Thunderball again and then making a readaptation of Casino Royale, which Sony also had the rights to at the time. The studio was interested and offered the role to Liam Neeson, who turned it down and then approached uh, then approached the recently left in the dust Bond actor Timothy Dalton, who uh, was, you know, he was basically like, hey, Tim. Timmy boy, Timmy, Tim, Tim, Timaru, you want to play James Bond again? I have the rights. We can do another one. And, uh, you know, he has said multiple times in interviews that Timothy Dalton wanted to do it. I don't think Timothy Dalton wanted to do it at all. Like, I think he really, despite not having a particularly long tenure, I think he really liked the Eon people and Barbara Broccoli was his friend. And he was just like, I'm not going to fucking do this, bro. And I think he's bright enough to recognize that would be salting the earth of his career, you know, and because Kevin McClure is crazy. And yeah. and it's it's clear like I, I can't I can't imagine I would love to see these scripts. I would love to read. It's like the James Bond equivalent of being a scab worker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, despite despite all of this, you know, everyone agreeing it's a bad idea, Sony and Kevin McClory announced that they're going to be making Warhead two thousand AD on October thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven, two months prior to the release of Tomorrow Never Dies. But then the film, well, it uh, it fell apart because of the legality of the McClory's never-ending remake strategy started to get called into question. The specifics here are a bit dodgy, but suffice it to say, everything fell apart. And the ultimate resolution is that Sony, uh, because Sony was suing MGM and McClory on behalf of them claiming that Eon had a version of Bond, which was derived from McClory's version of Bond from Thunderball. So, you know basically just a clusterfuck everybody sued each other the movie never got made which i don't think anyone really is bemoaning all that much um although i kind of really do want to see warhead 2080 just because just because then you have a trilogy you know with the one-off of never say never and thunderball you know you just have you have thunderball and it's weird vestigial little arm if you have 
two things and it's like look at this these weird triplets that are just like so bizarre it's the same story three times but each one like gets like uh it's like copies of copies it's like multiplicity each one gets shittier and shittier (laughs) the first one like listen listen it's we have ken adam did the set design uh we have the fucking bad guy from danger diabolic claudine onger uh uh we have we've invented underwater fight scenes frogmen spear fights uh you name it we got it all it's great great and each like that's you from that's you and everything they kind of strip all that away strip all the good stuff away now well we've got a 54 year old or i don't know how old was connery when they made it do you know no i don't off the top of my head but he looks yeah here a little worse here's an old dude uh just giving a woman a massage against her will tricking her into thinking that he's a masseuse and then she likes it for some reason yeah that's the weirdest part is they still they don't deviate from any of the all right and now james bond is a sex icon but he has a pot belly and gray hair and is a little old and he's literally in like an assisted living facility like, guess guess how old he was i'm gonna go f- 58 andrew andrew what you got uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a little younger because I feel like Sean Connery probably lived a similar lifestyle to James Bond, so he probably doesn't look great for his age. Fifty three. Yeah, he was. But depending on when it was, but yeah, somewhere between fifty one and fifty three. Mm. I know, like yes, yeah, wow. yeah. Oof. Like, that's the crazy shit too. Like, like he was only like four years. He's only four years older than Harrison Ford. Well, the reason I say that is because in Never Say Never, Never Again, he kind of looks older and younger from scene to scene. And I almost feel like that was just like him, like maybe he had just like been on more of a bender the night before they filmed those scenes than on other ones. That's so crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's it's not it's not great. I kind of um, I kind of love the, the the idea of it. Not that not that the movies would be quality, especially you know the copy of the copy thing. But I feel like we talk about we, we we talk about a certain type of person a lot on this show, and whether that's on purpose or just some weird coincidence, we talk about the, a similar type of person, and uh, you know that the the person who uh, gets like one thing and then they like latch onto it for their rest of their lives. And they become wholly, it, it consumes them in some way, and they become obsessed with it absolutely. Um, and this is almost like the ultimate version of that, uh, where, like, you know, and we've also talked a lot about iterative storytelling and this idea of, like, you you focus on a formula and you you repeat that over and over again and you iterate on that. And this is the ultimate version of that, where it's like, oh, it's not just like, oh, you have a show where it's about a robot guy fighting, you know, putties or whatever in kaiju it's like literally like you can only it's the weirdest like writing exercise writ lifetime career of all time you can only remake the same movie over and over again uh and obviously didn't pan out he only was able to do it once successfully yeah he tried to remake boy on a bridge did he no, he didn't. Oh, yeah, that one, the, yeah, that uh, one free the, and clear. Yeah. yeah, that one free and clear. Country, Come yeah. on. Yeah, Kevin. you you can only remake the one movie over and over again. And I, I I would almost love to just see that version of that where there are five remakes of Thunderball. It's the shitty giftless Connected in New York. Yeah. 
I would watch that too. I would watch. I would watch a Synecdoche, New York, directed by like Michael Bay or no, something. No, no, directed uh, directed by Irving Kirshner. Come on. But that. Oh right. That yeah. would be the ultimate version of it of Kevin McClory just renting out a giant warehouse and just staging a living version of Thunderball that's always <laughs> happening at all times. It's like uh, it's like Dogville. It's a one man show. Yeah. He's got a, a shape of a boat taped out on the floor. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it's a dramatic one-man show. Yeah, I love it. Ultimately, <laughs> Kevin McClory is remembered as the oh god, don't uh, don't put a guy. What the fuck? This joke doesn't make sense. Is remembered as the oh my god, don't eye my contract with him guy. I think you meant to say history. don't make eye contact with him. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, I did. All right, thank you, Andrew. Ultimately, Kevin McClory is remembered as the oh god, don't make eye contact with him guy in Bond history. However, if he hadn't been around and Bond, uh, he wouldn't. Bond would have never reached the the heights that it did because Blofeld wouldn't wouldn't have existed, and Spectre would never have been a thing. And every hero needs a villain, and every Bond needs a Blofeld. Also, Scene. Blofeld sucks and never say never again. Yeah, he's like barely in it too. Yeah, yeah. and good because it, it's just like like even with somebody who doesn't have an affinity for these movies necessarily, it's just like, this is what you chose to do with this legendary villain in this franchise. And, and I know, yeah, boy, let's, let me, let me see you and raise you there, Andrew, because uh, it's not like they finally got it back. You guys finally yeah. got him. And Spectre is fucking nonsense. Yeah. The movie, that movie is, I literally watched it last night in preparation for this. And I like the visuals in that movie. I like certain moments in that movie. The opening sequence in Mexico City is cool, but I'm sorry, making them brothers. I didn't need that on movie. I didn't. I didn't need that. All of it is no. It's a. It's a weird pile of. Yeah, uh, for a movie that had yeah, boy, I can't believe it. free and clear. You guys get it. You guys get the chance. You get to do it. You get to do it. That's what they do. Oi. Yeah. Yeah, I it's it's so sad, too, because like everything in that movie feels like half measures where it's like, OK, so we're going to we're going to make Blofeld. I am the architect of or your pain. Like we're going to he's going to be the overarching villain for everything, but not everything. Just the Daniel Craig era, because we're not sure that anybody knows those other movies. So it's and fine. that's the like the one of the uh, the cardinal sin. It's the thing that bummed me out about the la- the only thing that bummed me out about the last Mission Impossible movie. Like I go to Mission Impossible movies to not remember other Mission Impossible movies. Don't make me remember what happened four summers ago. I don't remember, and I resent you. And to suddenly like the guy showed up, and it was clearly supposed to be a thing, and it was Mister White, and it's like I haven't fucking seen the. Oh, who was he? What was like? Oh no, 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 no. Don't go, don't get up your ass with continuity. Don't, don't make these. It's not a novel. I dislike Sam Mendes and his instincts and the movies he makes and the stories he tells. And even applied to something like James Bond, it's just like, oh yeah, this, this doesn't work. This is why this doesn't work. This is why the, it doesn't work when you do it. And yeah, it just felt like half of, half of an effort to me. Like if they had half an effort, but actually, twice the budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, there's a good idea in there of like pulling everything together and you could kind of manicure the franchise and it doesn't have to be overt. Like you don't have to literally have a CGI Dr. No walking around, but you can allude that Bond has been doing a bunch of stuff. I mean, that's basically what Skyfall did. It put all the movies, if you're paying attention in continuity with each other. And if you're not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Also, a thing, like, also a thing I didn't need to see happen. 
I, I love that for me. I was like, ooh, this is great. Yeah, Spectre had that. <laughs> Spectre had the Star Trek Into Darkness thing where it was like, my real name is Blofeld. And it's like, n- nobody would know what that means except for the audience. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to say it with a lot of weight and a lot of yeah. drama so you know it's fucking important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wink into the camera with my vocal intonations. And then I'm just going to get into a helicopter and die. <laughs> and the, 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 uh, I can't, I can't. Yeah. Um, there's a moment in one of the, is it Thunderball? Uh, there's one kind of, it's an early retconning in, in the movies where like, oh no, Dr. No was Inspector and all these guys have been connected to Spectre. I can't remember which, maybe it was, maybe it was You Only Live Twice or I don't remember which one it was, but like, oh, okay, that worked because it wasn't, you didn't need to know who these people were. The yeah. point of that scene was all these other operatives have died. Why are you different? You know, why are you going to beat James Bond when everybody else couldn't? That was the point. And not you needed to remember who this guy was and what his important was and, you know, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, I, it's interesting, too, because you can kind of feel like everybody behind the Spectre movie feels that way. Like everybody is like, oh, everybody really loved Skyfall, but we didn't really, we didn't really nail Spectre. Oh. Yeah. Which is interesting because normally, normally when there are big franchise entries like that, if people feel that way, just nobody talks about it. You know, it's like a muerto. Uh, 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 until Skyfall, Thunderball was the top grossing Bond film. Interesting. I didn't know that. It was the high watermark. Nothing beat. That was what, that was what they came at. That was what they went after. One of the many things they went after Lazenby and Honor Magic Secret Service with was like, well, it didn't make more money than Thunderball. It's like, well, neither did... Uh, you only live twice, right? But that, yeah. uh, 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 so, uh, yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, Thunderball until Skyfall. Thunderball was number one. Spectre didn't beat, I think Spectre might be number two over Thunderball, but a lot of that might be like $40 IMAX tickets and shit, you know? <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. Thund- Thunderball was the high water box office mark of the movies until, until Skyfall. Yeah, it's just it's so interesting to me when when the when the kind of like kayfabe of these franchises are broken and people actually are kind of like, yeah, could have done better with that one. Like, I feel like even just now they're talking about Quantum of Solace that way, where you talk, you know, you see him on press tours or whatever. And Daniel Craig will be kind of like, uh, Quantum could have could have been we could have done better with Quantum. No, no. I mean, that, was a, that one was hobbled by a writer's strike. And Daniel yep. Craig, and uh, 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 do you know? Uh, do you uh, do you know about my past life? Have we ever talked about what I did before comics? Do you know my my connection to Quantum of Solace? No. I, oh wait, didn't you have a design company that did the 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 font or something? They yeah, did the opening, and yeah. all, all of the MI six computers and the opening credits, uh, and uh, the, that and um, the Beatles rock band game, all the interstitial animatics. Those were the first two projects they did after I quit. So I quit. I had a book and a half at Marvel Comics at their starter rate. And uh, the company I had walked away from in a real shitty, real pissy, fuck you, table flipping fit of immaturity and uh, 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 anger. Yeah, we're going to go be the first American company to do a Bond uh, credit sequence. And uh, then we're going to go do uh, Beatles Rock Band. So we're just going to go hang out in England for a year. And we're going to go back and forth from the Bond stage at Pinewood to Abbey Road working on these two projects 
And that was, and I was like, I'm writing half of Iron Fist. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife's pregnant. It's going great. <laughs> I mean, I feel like things worked out okay for you. I feel like you're doing all right. I still wouldn't have minded uh, getting driven around the Bond stage. Like my, my buddy Ben uh, got like the Bond driver, the lead Bond stunt driver, put him in the car and they went for like he, he got the road test, the the car and shit. Like that was pretty dope. I'd not like, yeah, I'd rather do that than fucking write X-Men. <laughs> well, if it, if it makes you feel any better, I did buy that Beatles rock band, but I, I only played it once. Oh, it's great. It was really good. Nice. I just kind of put it away. You you just you were like this one's for Matt and you threw it on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even I didn't know what that meant at the time. I it was it's it's all coming together now. Yeah, it's it's all coming together now. Yeah. The funny thing is, is it like I, like I can recognize their work when I see it, and I didn't know about either. Oh, I knew I knew about Bond by the time Bond came out, but I didn't know about Rock Band until I played Rock Band and saw it, and I was like, oh fuck, like I can't believe those were the first two gigs. Oh Christ. <sighs> well, and Marvel's come to you since and tried to get you to come back to X-Men stuff, right? Mm-mm. No. Oh, they haven't? Oh, okay. I thought that you'd been offered more X stuff and turned it down. Well, like during, uh, like, but like when I was there, not like since I've left Marvel. Like oh, when okay. I was a part, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm, I think the first dude in history to turn down three different X-Men number ones, which is like real stupid. <laughs> it's real, real stupid. You just love having a mortgage, man. You're just like really into that. You know, that's a lot of like, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's okay. Yeah, no, I was a better X-Men reader than I was an X-Men writer. Uh, I give myself credit at least for understanding that. But yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I kind of will. I wish without saying anyone's name or speaking ill of anybody, there are some writers who I just in mainstream comics, I wish that they would just do half the amount of books that they're doing. I think that's such a major problem in comics today that like nobody says no to anything and it's just like ah do you need to be writing 14 books right 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 i mean i don't know i don't know i just feel like i feel like it's bad for the the industry because readers don't know like which one of insert any person you know insert writer that they love like which is the book that i need to read like which is the one that they really care about and yeah i'm aware of the fiscal realities of comics and how you really the direct market requires a shotgun approach i get it i publish comics i know i know i understand but like just existentially it's like ah you're just doing half as much stuff i feel like everything would be that much better but there's i mean i i I think you know I, i think it comes and goes in waves you know there's there's definitely people who um i feel like there's definitely writers you can tell when they're like holding their nose closed with one hand while they type yeah. And, and also yeah. seem to not say no to anything so it's like well you clearly have contempt for the material and yet you keep saying yes yeah, um, yeah. Um, but you know that kind of any port in a storm hack like well that's just, just the reality of things but um, yeah and it, 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 it it's hard too because like as you know like that freelance life man I get it I understand it's hard and you know, you know and too there's there's like I remember when I was at my busiest, I was doing six and a half books a month for Marvel. And it was not planned. It just kind of happened. And I know that sounds weird, but but it was like because of the vagaries of shipping and things, you'd be writing. Like I was writing four different Thor storylines at the same time. 
right? And like, it's just this crazy to, to, to serve the beast of, of double shipping or just artists that can't meet the, those deadlines with, with quality, uh, like the realities of what it meant was suddenly I was doing six and a half books a month and fucking miserable, you know? Um, um, everything was typed rather than written and done in kind of like a fugue state. And it's not a thing that you get into on purpose. It's just suddenly you turn around and it's like, well, we need this book for this guy and this book for that guy. And it's going to be late if we need to do this thing. Shit, I have to write three. Like, so I was writing literally four storylines at the same time. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So the, the vagaries of the, I, I, whatever life looks like on the other side of this, th- this thing we're in now, um, I hope that are you referencing this podcast or the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, it's on the other side of this podcast of uh, 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 that, like it's a chance to to reboot an industry, yeah. right? And that, that I think that that's really exciting. Like it's a chance to get rid of some old bad practices and modernize and update and rethink some kind of received wisdom. I, I hope I hope comics listens to. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about the potential of that. I'm also uh, a pragmatist and I just know that the direct market is fucked and it's going to be real bad for a hot minute. Um, like I've, I've had, I've had two, two direct market books just fully been like, Nope, we're not publishing them. We'll let you know when we are, which I'm, I'm not alone in that. A lot of people have. Yeah, no, all of my, like, yeah, I'm, I'm firing things off to a server and I have no idea when they're going to show up. Um, yeah. I got five issues of adventure, four issues of adventure man in the can. I have two graphic novels that are done. Like, it's just like a crazy, I guess DC is starting to roll again. So it looks like mm. end of June things should start happening again, but like, it's going to be weird. It's going to be real, weird, real, real, real fucking weird for a while. Um, but it beats sitting around, you know, I, I mean, what else am I going to do? I mean, literally this weekend, my, uh, my right hand has been clicking, which is not good. So I've stopped drawing with it for the time being, and I'm only I'm jerking on right off now. with it now. <laughs> the book that I'm working on right now, I'm toning with my left hand, just because it's it's not going to get done if I don't do it. And that's how the movie Monkey Bone started, Dave. You need to be careful. Oh right, yeah, be yeah. Careful with that. Yeah, I'm starting my own remake. I'm Kevin McClorying it. It's called Davy Bone. It's just me and an animated me <laughs> making comics together. But it's stop motion. But it's also me. Yeah, yeah. But it's stop motion. Yeah, but but the but but the stop motion me is vo- voiced by Chris Kattan. It's great. You'll you'll love it. Chris got to eat. I get it. I get it. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I feel like we should just put a button on this uh, of the two things. Kevin McClory. Two things I forgot to mention about that I read about Never Say Never Again. The first one. So the ship from the movie that in this movie is called the Flying Saucer. In the original, yeah. it was called Disco Volante, which is. Uh, one of my favorite bands, Mr. Bungle, named their second album uh, Disco Volante after this, which I discovered from watching the movie and being like, oh. Oh my God, uh, those guys are Mr. Bungle fans. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the ship in, in Never Say Never Again was on loan, being allowed to use for free by a arms dealer named Adnan Kasagi. Yeah, Adnan Kasagi. Yeah. And, and the ship that was used in that in Never Say Never Again was later purchased by Donald Trump and and it became his ship and it was called the Trump Boo. the Trump Princess. Boo. Um also while I was watching this, because I, I watched the movie last night as well, and throughout the course of the movie, there were several moments where I was like, that seems like animal abuse. Uh dude, they threw that fucking horse yeah. 
into some sort of giant pool slash river slash yeah. whatever. They threw that fucking horse. And there's multiple moments of that. Uh, and so, uh, lo and behold, I found out after the fact that this is the movie that created the law that required movies to have the disclaimer at the end that says no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. No horse murder law. Thank you. Yes. the McClory rule. Right. Yeah. In the same in the same way that Gremlins was the movie that caused the PG-13 rating, this movie caused that. Um, there's a second uh, Christmas. There's a second song in the film on Her Majesty's Secret Service uh, sung by uh, Swedish pop superstar Nina called Do You Know How Christmas Trees Are Grown? Uh, and it's haunting and weird, as most Christmas songs are. Uh, and it's music cue in the movie uh, happens in my favorite scene where a Lazenby is a uh, cornered like an animal and he's going to die. And in the process of dying, he's probably going to get a good amount of innocent people killed. And he'll also fail in his mission, which means even more innocent people gets killed. And he is absolutely trapped. And he has no way out and he has no way to escape where he's at. And all he can do is sit on a bench and kind of hide his face and wait. And he looks like he's having a panic attack. And uh, uh, as the song by Nina is playing, uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the chorus of the song is, do you know how Christmas trees are grown? They need uh, uh, laughter and raindrops, but most of all, they need love. And right as he says that, uh, a blast of ice kicks up in Lazenby's face and he look up and who has skated in front of him but Diana Rigg, who has come to save him. Uh, uh, and she does. And... He marries her in this fucking movie. And that's the thing we did not say the entire time. James Bond gets married in this fucking movie. And it's the best. And you should go see it. And you should watch it right now. Stop everything and watch <laughs> watch a movie just shorter than this podcast. <laughs> because that scene is the best in any James Bond film. It's great. I Yeah. I mean, I, I loved that scene. Uh, I loved the movie. Uh, it might be literally one of the only James Bond movies, at least that I saw that I actually just genuinely really enjoyed, uh, except for the Daniel Craig movies. And now that you've sort of explained the lineage of that, now I get it like, Oh, cause they're kind of going for that. Uh, and that just for whatever reason connects with me more. I think you can watch like you do from Russia with love and Thunderball and Honor Majesty's secret service. And like, those are, that's a, that's, that's, that's pretty, that's, that's not bad. And it's, as light on the racism as can possibly be expected. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, there's still there's still stuff in it, but yeah, it, it definitely feels like problematic fave, problematic yeah. fave. or just yeah. problematic. Yeah. I yeah. And I, I think it's also worth noting that uh, George Lazenby burned his career to the burned his career to the ground when he left the franchise and then just kind of like fucked off and was a real estate developer and like a fucking like a dude that sold people houses for like the next 30 years. And like every once in a while would pop up in little B movies here and there. But for the most part, he was just a dude who worked in real estate. You know, uh, and Bruce Lee killed himself to get away from him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's one of the darkest. I'm sorry. That's my that's my real dark George Lazenby joke. Um, yeah, he's going to be the bad guy in Game of Death. And uh, yep. uh, uh, Bruce Lee died. Um, so yeah, so Bruce Lee killed him to get killed himself to get away from George Lee. Um, you know, at the end of Never Say Never Again, there is supposed to be a thing where Connery would walk by more and they would stop and like thing and then keep going their opposite directions. And it was decided let's not piss off. Yeah, it was they decided against it. But you know, then it, clearly the part of Albert, the Albert Finney part in Skyfall was clearly written for Sean Connery. And Sean yeah. Connery clearly said, go fuck yourself. 
how great would it have been if it was Lazenby? I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to tell, tell me just that. Think, twice. Like, how yeah. fucking great would that have been if it was George Lazenby? Why? Why? Why wouldn't it have been? Because uh, Sam Mendes is terrible. We've talked about that before on the podcast. Yeah, I don't know. Sam Mendes is bad. <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about that before on the podcast of these actors that is just like, how do they not? get work like if i was making a movie i would definitely put that person in the movie i think a little bit it's got to be like comics like there are people in comics all of whom should remain nameless but like stellar talents people who produce work like singular and iconoclastic and they don't work very much and it's mystifying and then you're in comics for 20 minutes and you meet three people who've had terrible stories about them and what nightmare psychopaths they are or whatever and it's like oh that's why that person doesn't work a lot is you're difficult you're just it's 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 impossible to you're unreliable right yeah. um but yeah that always that's that's my my i will still catch myself saying why doesn't this guy work more? oh somebody he's crazy okay i got it yeah so yeah i don't know man i i think i would deal with the uh i would deal with the crazy George Lazenby for a couple days, have him in a cameo. I love that guy. Even though, even though I know it would be a bad experience, that's kind of what I want, right? It'd be like, it would be like, it would be like showing a portfolio to Mort Weisinger. Like, I know what I'm gonna, I know what this is. This guy's a fucking raging asshole, but I, I'm here for the Mort Weisinger <laughs> dressing down. Like, let's do this. Yeah. There's a, I was with Chaken once, and he was, he's a delightful dude, and he's hilarious. And he was being delightful and hilarious with somebody. And somebody was, oh, man, I thought you were going to be real mean to me. I'd always heard you were an asshole. And he's like, oh, you want me to be an asshole? Go fuck yourself and fuck you and fuck your books. And, like, I asshole can come if that's what you want. But, like, it's not my default mode. But, yeah, I yeah. would, I would, uh, uh, I don't know. I was, I was, I, I hope, seeing him in that Eon documentary, I hope that maybe age, he's mellowed a little bit and kind of embraced his piece of this kind of insane monument of pop culture. It wouldn't be where it yeah. is without him. But it also couldn't be where it is with him. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems like he's definitely been humbled. the 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 whetstone has been worn down a little bit over the years. And now he's just out living in Santa Monica. He was he. I think the show is long canceled. But he was like uh, Jim Jeffries had a show. Yeah, he and was. He was and he was like dad, his dad. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's gotta be. Yeah, I, that's gotta be down to just love and bond, right? There's no way. No, there's no way Lazenby no yeah. is going out on the yeah. calls or whatever. Yeah, I I tried to get Lazenby to be in a short film that I directed, and I <laughs> I sent I sent like you know a nice little pitch package and the script and a very nicely worded email to his agent, expecting to get rejected. And guess what? I flat out got rejected when you know they were like, "Oh, this looks interesting. What's the budget?" And I told them the budget on the film, and they were like, "Ha ha, no!" And <laughs> the excuse was George is George is concentrating on spending more time with his children and grandchildren to these days. And I was like, I get it. But also, come on, George, come on. You don't want to be in this thing. Let's do this. Bring the kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Parts parts for him. I don't give a shit. What? You want to make this the Magnificent Ampersons? But you're just, you know, there's just 30 Lazen Bees. Yeah, let's do it. I'm into it. I love it. Do you know the well, Do you know the song like Lazenby by Sandra Lurka or however you say the, say the name? No, no, I don't. Like yeah. Lazenby, it's a beautiful song. It's kind of like you know, like the uh, like the bare naked uh, ladies uh, Brian Wilson song. Only it doesn't suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, thank you very much for hanging out with us and talking about this James Bond bullshit, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank you great. for indulging 
all of my worst behavior. Uh, 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 <laughs> I, I, I needed this. This was good. Thank you. Uh, I'm Dave Baker. You can find me on the internet at xdavebaker or xdavebakerx, and my website's heydavebaker.com. Matt, do you have some place that people can find you on the interwebs? Nope. Yeah. He's too he's too cool for the internet now. No, <laughs> no, there's just too many Nazis. I decided it wasn't worth it. And uh uh yeah, uh, too many Nazis. I'm done. Ugh, so many Nazis. So Sorry, many Nazis. But you know. It's all right. No, I get it. I think I have a Wikipedia and- page. You can find me there. <laughs> you, you can find me at wikipedia.org, search for my name, and then just edit your questions into my entry, and maybe someone will notify me that it has happened. That's the only way to communicate with him. Yeah, I'm only contactable by editing my Wikipedia page. Oh my god, that would be fucking amazing. I'm kind of into that, man. I I, I I love love that idea. Well, great, now everybody's going to know how to get a hold of me. All right, comics. When comics come back, I'll have comics back. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, the new Terry Dodson book. Sounds cool. Oh, man. He finished the colors tonight. It's the best looking thing he's ever done hands down but it is absolutely the most beautiful book he's ever done and the first issue was like triple sized and we're charging zero dollars for it or like i think we're charging a normal price for like a a book three times the size of a normal book so it's it's big and beautiful and it's great you know it's beautiful with nothing else it's beautiful to look at andrew died (laughs) yeah i would ask i would ask him where people can find him on the internet but he's just frozen now okay well just just type in andrew.com you'll find him Yep, he's there. He's there at andrew.edu. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.